Welcome to the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast from Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, John Martin Keith. Celebrities, working class musicians, and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories, encourage you, and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Edenbrook Productions. Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. I am so very excited that you're with us today. I want to introduce you to my friend Stephen Scharf of Stephen Scharf Entertainment in New York. Stephen is a living embodiment of rock and roll history. The stories you're going to hear today are pretty incredible uh, of what he has lived through and got to experience back in the late 60s and the 70s and 80s of rock and roll. And he got to actually apprentice at Muscle Shoals Studio in Alabama, where he got to work with the Rolling Stones, Aretha Franklin, Leonard Skinner, all these amazing rock and pop and R&B artists uh, from back in the day. And he, he got to be there as it happened. I'm excited for that. And also for you to hear about his company, Stephen Scharf Entertainment, which does music licensing for artists uh, that work in television, film, uh, and all those types of things, which we've talked about a lot over, uh, over the course of this podcast. And so he's just going to kind of drill that home and give you some great information that you're going to want to know and to put into practice into your career. So uh, sit back and get ready for an amazing interview. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am super excited to introduce you to Mr. Stephen Scharf. How are you today, sir? I'm good, Marty. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Happy to be alive. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much for for, uh, coming on the show and talking with me. I've been looking forward to this, uh, talking with you for a while now. Um, And just to kind of give give my audience an idea of who you are and how we met. So you work in music supervision and TV film. Uh, you've done a little bit of everything over the course of your career, which is awesome. I know you've done, you've been a producer and you worked A&R and um, you've worked with huge artists throughout, you know, the, the music industry over the, over the years. And so that's exciting to talk with you about those types of things. But I think you and I f- first met about a year ago, roughly a year ago. Um, uh, we met over like Facebook or something because just because I've been working in the in the TV film industry for um, in the sync world for you know a couple of years now, and uh, some people that I've worked with knew you and we got connected that way, and we became Facebook friends. And then you were here in Nashville uh, for the Americana Festival last year, and we're speaking at that. And somehow I found out about that, and you were kind enough to invite me to come down to attend that that panel and. Uh, we got to meet just just briefly there, but um, so, and we've kind of continued that that conversation since then. So I was glad we got a chance to talk recently and um, and to invite you to come on. So thank you so much for being here. Well, sure, absolutely, and it's my pleasure, Marty. If I could just clarify 
for a sec what Please. I actually do. Um, yeah. I, I'm not uh, a, a music supervisor per se, although I did work uh, on supervision of one television series many years ago called Street Time with my composer at that time. But uh, what I do is I license music. To right, film licensing to, agent. Uh, yeah. I have a big licensing platform with 90 yes. artists signed to my company. Uh, which I pitched to TV, film, commercials, uh, all kinds of platforms of licensing, uh, gaming, right. you know, so yep. forth. Yep. Uh, and I manage film and television composers who score movies and TV and uh, uh, still a couple of record producers as well. So that's what I'm currently involved in. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I work... apologize. I said no. it wrong. Well, that's I, all right. I, I... That's what I meant. I meant to say it, <laughs> licensing agent, and I said music supervisor, and right, so right. my fault. I apologize. But, but yes, I have I done that Thank for you. one project. You but you've done that. a little bit of everything, which is yeah, awesome. And that's, yeah, and, and that's why I wanted to have you on because you've you are so varied in what you've done throughout uh -huh. your career, and so and it's just, and I think that is what makes you so successful is that you've you've been in so many different aspects of it, and you're able to incorporate all those things together, and so it gives you a unique perspective that a lot of people don't have. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I, I've been very blessed to, to uh, have made a living my entire life uh, from from music. Uh, I sell, last December, I celebrated 50 years of wow. being in the business. Well, congratulations. Um, thanks. You know, and so I'm now into heading towards my 51st year, but <laughs> um, at the end of the year. I think that makes you my my only guest with the longest running career span so far. So that's awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. been, it's been, a, it's been an amazing ride to say the least. You know? So, well, let's, let's back up for a moment and mm -hmm. tell us, tell your, my audience who you are, um, where you're from and what got you into music to begin with and kind of on that set on that journey. Well, uh, I'm, uh, Steve Scharf and, and, and I live here in New York city currently, uh, up in Harlem, I was born in New York. I've lived here my whole life, uh, although I'm going to be uh, moving to another state soon this summer and uh, for a change. But uh, music, man, music is what kept me going as a young kid. Um, I was fortunate to grow up, you know, live through the 60s uh, in a big way. I was born in the early 50s uh, and and. Uh, to have been embraced by music is really what got me through tough times, you know, with family, growing up, all of that. Music was my escape. Uh, that's really the big key. And it then became my life's goal and passion. Um, I have been very fortunate to uh, have gone down a, a path where things came to me. And I really believe that's a big, big reason and, 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 and how things happen with people. You, you, everybody has to make their own path in life. Um, but when you, when you find something you love and you go for it, it's amazing what doors start to open and you have to recognize when that happens and go for it. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, 
but it was music that I would lock myself in my room when I was in, you know, grade school and then high school and listen to tons of music and go to concerts. I mean, living here in New York City, I basically lived at the Fillmore East, you know, when that was around in the late 60s um, and saw some of the greatest concerts of all time and, and got to experience just great, great music. And even prior to that, back when I was, I guess, 13, 14 years old, going down to Greenwich Village, back then all the clubs you could go to they didn't serve liquor. They served soda and milkshakes. Right. Which was great. There was no liquor situation. So you can go to the Cafe Wa, the Bitter End, the Cafe Gogo, all these great clubs and, and see amazing artists uh, at a young age and hang out and, and, and absorb it. And that's what I did. I mean, I just took in all kinds of music. I mean, everything that I could get my years on you know basically i mean i was certainly a lover of uh, of rock and 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 pop and and soul and r&b and and uh that was you know probably the main sources of music that i listened to once i got to college that's when i really got exposed to jazz which i'm a huge jazz fan and lover of that music um and it was what got me through everything and uh, I guess if you want to know how it all started for me, uh, it was 1969, which was the big year. I was seven, 17 years old. Um, an artist that my parents knew, Tomiko Jones, uh, who was from Detroit, uh, she was a recording artist. She had been on Atlantic Records uh, in 1967. She made an album with Herbie Mann. Uh, Ahmed Erdogan signed her, who owned Atlantic. And then she made an album on uh, CTI, A&M. And then my parents knew her because she had been dating one of my dad's customers. My dad was in the clothing business. And she came to New York. She moved to New York. And I met her. And we, we, she became like my second sister and she wanted to make a new album and needed some money. My dad gave her $25,000 to, to make an album, which she was going to produce and then sell to a label, which she did. And she said, and when I met her, I was just taken aback because I, I first it's the first person I ever could talk to about music in a very different way. She was a record producer as well. She had produced Solomon Burke's version of Proud Mary in Muscle Shoals, Alabama in mid-69 uh, for Atlantic. And, and so she said, I want to bring Stephen down to Muscle Shoals when I make this album. And my parents said, sure, great. You know, we'll work it out. And, it was my senior year of high school. I had just seen the Rolling Stones for the first time on Thanksgiving night uh, in 1969 at the Garden on the Get Your Yayas Out tour, which was pretty exciting. Lo and behold, we were going down to Muscle Shoals on December 5th, 1969. That was the date. That's when it all started. And we had to get down that day. The three days prior to that, 
the Rolling Stones were in the studio in Muscle Shoals recording Brown Sugar Wild Horses and You Gotta Move on the way to Altamont to do that fateful concert. And they were being filmed by the Maisley Brothers for the Gimme Shelter documentary. So we get down to Muscle Shoals and uh, I mean, it was just this little tiny town in Northern Alabama. And while we were there, uh, Ahmed Erdogan was down there. He had been there with the Stones because he, he was signing them and giving them their own label at, at Atlantic for Rolling Stones Records, but, but that hadn't happened yet. But he was there overseeing the project with them. And he brought down Sam Cooke's nephew, R.B. Greaves, uh, to produce his debut album uh, on split sessions with Tomiko's record. So here we are in Muscle Shoals. We're staying in the uh, Holiday Inn in Sheffield, which is no longer there, but there's a plaque, which I have a picture of, which was the site of where it all happened when the stones stayed there, when things happened in Muscle Shoals. And Ahmed flew down his Rolls Royce from New York, which was pretty crazy because all the vehicles on the road at that time were uh, pickup trucks with shotgun racks. And he drove us back and forth to the studio every day. So I get to meet Ahmed Erdogan, the owner of Atlantic Records, great producer, great, you know, uh, uh, musical genius, in my opinion, and and became a mentor to me early on. And and, uh, we're going back and forth to the studio and he's cutting you know, RB's record. And so I, I come into the studio. It's a small little uh, cinder block building from the outside. And it's one big room with a couple ISO rooms, all eight track. That was state of the art. Tom Dowd was there. Uh, Amit brought him down to engineer uh, RB's sessions, who then later became one of the great producers. And he built this the board at Muscle Shoals for them. And I'm thrust with all these musicians that are there. Um, Dwayne Allman was just leaving the studio at that time uh, to start the Allman Brothers Band, uh, which Tom produced their first few albums. And the rhythm section of, of the studio, and these are the guys that owned the studio, were Jimmy Johnson, who passed away last year, who was like a brother to me, uh, David Hood, Roger Hawkins, Barry Beckett. Barry passed away quite a few years ago. Uh, Eddie Hinton, another great guitar player who's no longer with us. Um, and and uh, they, they were basically the main rhythm section of, of the studio and owners. And Jimmy also engineered as well. He actually engineered the Stones tracks. So I come into the studio and there we are. And... Jimmy says, you want to hear what, a, what we just recorded the last couple of days? And I was the first person outside of the Rolling Stones and the studio to hear these tracks. Wow. Brown cool. Sugar, Wild Horses, and You Gotta Move. It was mind-blowing how great wow. they sounded. All basic tracks on a track. And I said, wow, this is something else. So the sessions began. I was there for two weeks. And... It was pretty incredible. I mean, Tamika was recording at night with them, and and during the day, RB was recording with Amit and Tom Dowd, and got to hear, you know, and watch some of the greatest musicians learn songs in like one take, play it, cut it. It was incredible. 
I mean, just to be in the middle of a room sitting there watching all this happen. It was pretty mind-blowing for a 17-year-old kid from New York City Mm -hmm. being thrust into the scene, which, you know, could have never happened any other way, but how it happened. And uh, I remember one of the days we were down there, uh, we were in the front office with Barry Beckett. He was uh, Xeroxing in the Xerox machine, you know, Bart mm-hmm. chords with numbers. That's how they <laughs> what they used to play because he was the only one who could really read music. The rest of the guys could read his bar chord charts with numbers. And and Ahmed comes into the the office and with, with a, a record under his arm. He says, "Tamiko, Tamiko, you got to hear this record. Uh, I'm going to cut a song on RB's uh, album that we're doing." Um, and there's a song on here I think you should record as well. So he pulls out this white sleeve record. He said, Mo Austin, who at the time was the president of Warner Brothers Records, flew this record by courier down to Alabama for Ahmed. So it's a blank white sleeve record. He puts it on. It's Sweet Baby James, James Taylor's mm-hmm. album, months wow. before it was released. And he said, I'm going to cut this song Fire and Rain with with RB. There's a song in here called Blossom. You should do so. And she did. She ended up cutting it on the record. And we got to hear this record. And I knew who James Taylor was because I had his album on Apple that the Beatles put out, which was great. And it was pretty amazing to hear this record before anybody else got to hear it. Um, And and, uh, that was just a magical two weeks being in the studio and watching all these recordings go down. And hanging out with Tom Dowd and watching him work. And I mean, it was just indescribable. It was just an amazing experience. And, and from there, um, I ended up going back to Muscle Shoals on my spring break in 1970 for a week. Um, and then in the summer of 1971, while I was in college, I drove down to Muscle Shoals from New York for, for an entire month. And during that time, uh, Jerry Wexler came down to finish up Aretha Franklin's This Girl's in Love With You album. It was the last uh, record Dwayne Allman played on before he got killed on the motorcycle about a, about two months later. And, and uh, that was amazing, sitting there with Wexler and, you know, hearing Aretha's vocals, um, you know, muted, you know, the tracks muted and hearing her singing. It was just amazing, mm. just incredible. And then... Part of that month of being in the studio, there were two brothers that were working there from Florida, from Jacksonville, Tim and Steve Smith, and they were songwriter, engineers, budding producers. Um, Years later, Steve went on to produce the first three Robert Palmer albums and recorded a lot of the Bob Marley and the Whaler records for Chris Blackwell at Island. But this is when they were starting out. So while we're there... They said to Jimmy and David, Jimmy Johnson, David Hood, who ran the production company, you know, there's a band we went to high school with in, in Florida that you should record. They're really great and they're really young. And it was Leonard Skinner. And mm, they wow. decided to do it. So the band drove all the way from Florida to Muscle Shoals. And there we were. We were all 19 years old. Uh, myself and the band, Ronnie Van Sant was 21. He was a little bit older. And we proceeded to cut an entire album of demos. They had just written a song called Freebird, 
at the time. So, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing all this stuff. They were one of the best rock and roll bands I ever heard. And they were just, just fantastic. And Ronnie was such a visionary and what a sweetheart of a guy. And I got to know him pretty well and talked to him quite a lot. So we did these recordings. It was the original lineup when Ricky Medlock was the drummer in the band. He's now in the band as a guitarist because uh, he left the group before they actually got signed. So uh, it, that that was all part of that summer of 71. It was that first half of that summer. It was really an incredible time for me. Um, so let me ask you, let me ask sure. you a question real quick. Um, so when you're down there at this time uh, with them, are you doing like an internship with them? Yeah, I mean they basically um, allowed me to to be there and and to yeah to intern and to teach me the ropes. I mean I learned from the best musicians and engineers and and producers in the world. You know, I mean they were, I mean just to be able to sit there and watch all this happen and suck it all in, it was pretty incredible. It really was. Wow. Um, cool. So are you learning how to produce and engineer and kind well, of well, yeah. I mean, I'm just learning the ropes, and yeah, because yeah. I ended up being a producer for many years right. after that. But um, and, and and it was just just amazing, you know. And to sit and talk with Jimmy and and David and Barry Beck, you know, I mean, and, and Roger, I mean, they were just they really they were like big brothers to me, yeah. You know, and and and, and they just took me under their wing and it was what well, incredible that's in, i mean that is incredible and what a what a story you've got to tell you know what history that you get to share you got a unique perspective on that so many people would love to have been <laughs> in in your shoes at that moment you know right. um and i talk about this all the time on almost every episode i feel like i talk about this but it really comes down to relationships with people i mean you you built a relationship with this with this girl who became like a sister to you who was in the industry and got and gave you an opportunity to go down to muscle shows to be at in the studio where mm -hmm. you met all of these people and they t take you under their wing and, you know, and start teaching you how to do all this, all this stuff. And now, you know, and it's putting you right front and center, you know, to, to launch you into your career doing this, you know, but it's, it, it was all these relationships that you built along the way because you didn't know like the musical aspect of it necessarily. And they, but they're putting you in this place where they get to teach you and you got the ability to learn from them from the very best, and that's amazing. Yeah, it it was it was wild. I mean, I I knew what Muscle Shoals was all about because back in the late '60s, you know, mid '60s, I guess, um, there was a, a re record promotion man who was really famous at Atlantic named Juggy Gales, who's certainly long past now. Uh, Juggy and my dad went to high school together down okay. in Lower Manhattan. Lower East Side. And so Juggy brought me over to Atlantic Studios before I ever went to Muscle Shoals. Okay. And I actually got to see the Rascals record People Gotta Be Free uh, in Atlantic Studios here in New York, which was pretty exciting at the time. Mm. Uh, but he put me on the mailing list. So I was on the Atlantic mailing list from 1967 to about 71. And I got every promo single an album that came out so wow. i got to hear all i have all these incredible and a lot of the records that were done on muscle shoals had recorded in muscle shoals so i knew what it was and and who 
these people were when I got down there. Mm-hmm. But it was just amazing to to experience all of it. And you know, it, what's incredible is that they, you know the, they were white. I mean, all the musicians pretty much were white, except for a couple of the horn players. Um, these are white, you know, uh, musicians from from Alabama who were soulful as hell. They could play anything. They could play soul, R&B, rock. I mean, and it proved it over the years because so many artists flocked down there from Bob Seger to Traffic, um, you know, Leon Russell, Laura Nero. I mean, you know, they, they, they played on so many records and Cat Stevens they worked with. I mean, it was just just amazing. Um, and Paul Simon, that, that that's one of the great stories David Hood t- tells. He wanted to come down there, and I was already in college at that point when he came down to Muscle Shoals. Um, he called up Stax Record Records to find out who the reggae musicians were who played on the Staple Singers album. I'll take you there. And uh, Al Bell um, and Jim Stewart, they, 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 they cracked up. They said, those aren't. Jamaican musicians. Those are white guys from Muscle Shoals. Mm-hmm. He said, what are you talking about? He said, we couldn't make the Staples record because at the time, the whole Booker T MGs were on tour in Europe with the Stax Review and they had to make an album and they called up Jimmy and David and Barry and said, can you make this record? So that first Staples Singers record was done in Muscle Shoals. And I mean, David's bass playing and I'll take, I'll take it as monumental, you know? And so he said, Oh my God. So he came down there and he did the Ryman Simon album with them. I mean, and then, uh, they played on Kodachrome and loves me like a rock, all that great stuff. Yeah. That's amazing. So after, after you've been there and you're working, in that capacity for a while, um, moving on and actually becoming a part, quote unquote, of the industry to where you're actually working and getting paid to do work as a, either as producer or whatever it is, it is, where did you move from into that, into that, that, that kind of a position? Well, after I graduated college, um, I, I, I found a band that I went to high school with the bass player, uh, at the time, and uh, it was a, a, a little local New York band called Sigrundi, and I ended up being their manager and producer, and I started okay. recording them, and and uh, you know cutting them, you know cutting uh, demos with them. Uh, I, I actually went up to Boston to do a lot of the recordings because I had a lot of um, relationships out of Boston from going to school in New Hampshire, and uh, took them to Intermediate Sound and. and there and that studio became the studio that the cars ended up buying and owning years later and um you know i was just cutting my my teeth on cutting demos with them and mm-hmm. and and trying to bring them around you know to, to companies and and we really didn't get much off the ground with it but it, you know it was more of a real learning experience for me but then it was 1976 i ended up getting a job as a writer at Cashbox magazine. And that happened through Juggy Gales from Atlantic. Okay. Uh, he got me, he introduced me to Marty Ostrow, who was uh, second in command of the magazine in New York. And I ended up becoming an editorial writer there for about six months. And, but that was a really big opening for me because I started to review records and concerts in New York. 
and also do interviews with industry uh, professionals um, and write all kinds of different stories. And, and, and they sent me around to different places. Well, one of my favorite uh, things that happened out of that was when I went to Memphis for the opening of Mercury Records office uh, in 1976. Uh, uh, Sam Phillips' nephew, Judd Phillips Jr., uh, was going to run the office. And so they sent people down from Cashbox, Billboard, and Record World to for a few days to cover it. And I got to meet Jerry Lee Lewis, and we were on a riverboat ride. And all the Booker T and the MGs, and it was quite a, quite a quite a wild few days. Um, but that was really a fun assignment uh, during that time. Um, got got to meet Al Green and do an interview with him here in New York during that run. And I always post that picture every year on Facebook because his birthday is the day before mine, and okay. uh, that was pretty crazy and wild. So I was at Cashbox, but Cashbox opened the doors because I met so many people in the business. Right. And from there, I was um, uh, still producing uh, uh, for a while. And I was at an industry dinner. It was at one of the TJ Martell uh, dinners that raises money for leukemia, uh, all, all record industry professionals. And I'm at the hors d'oeuvre table. And this was in early 1977. And I see Larry Utah walks up to me and he was the president and owner of private stock records prior to that bell records. And he knew who I was. Um, and he said, Hey, I'd like to talk to you. Um, would you be interested in doing A&R for me at my label? I said, wow. I said, well, I'd love to explore that. So we ended up having lunch a week later and he really liked where I was coming from. And um, Irv Beagle, who was his second in command of private stock had left the company to start Millennium Records with Jimmy Einer at the time. And so there was this big opening and I got the gig. And wow. I became, you know, head of A&R for, for this big independent label. And I was 25 years old. It was really something else. Uh, Blondie was already on the label. They had already made one record. I was involved in overseeing Plastic Letters, their second album, which ended up coming out on Chrysalis a few years later because we sold their contract to them. But I was involved in signing Robert Gordon and Link Ray, Benny Mardonis, Rupert Holmes for one album. And I had a big, big record with Samantha Sang, who was from Australia. Um, she was uh, best friends with the Bee Gees growing up. And Barry Gibb always said, if you ever decide to make a record, I'm gonna help you out. And he not only uh, produced the record with Albie and Carl, who did all the Bee Gees records. He sang on it with her. It wasn't really a credited duet, but it was. It was a song called Emotion, which he, he and his brothers wrote for Andy Gibb, their younger brother, who didn't want to do it. And I ended up hearing this record through a music publishing company called Cam that uh, financed the recording of it. And I ended up playing it for Larry and I said, we got to sign this. This, this is a hit record. And we bought it uh, on the uh, uh, assumption that we were going to make an album. 
So we had to pay, we paid like $70,000 at the time for one song, but wow. it was to cover the cost to make the album as well. So we did, and uh, that record was huge. I mean, it went to number one in March of 78. It rode the whole wave of the Bee Gees Saturday Night Fever Run, and, and that was a really big record that, that saved our label. It kept us in business for another year because that was at a time when independent labels were really struggling and either being bought up by majors or going out of business. So, um, so I got to make records with David soul, Frankie Valley, Jose Feliciano, um, uh, you know, some, some really amazing, you know, classic kinds of artists like that sure and then new Nurax. so it was great with benny mardonis was amazing we had andrew luke oldham who produced the stones produced his debut record thank god for girls with mick ronson playing on it you know i mean it was just just a great a great time and sure. i got to interact with a lot of producers hiring them to make records for me mm-hmm. you know for the artists so, yeah let me ask you a question when you got that job to be the head of A&R for this label. Um, I mean, you've been producing a little bit and you were writing for um, a, a public a publication. Yeah, Cashbox. But, yeah, but you hadn't done, you hadn't done A&R b- before that. Like, did you understand what the, what that entailed and like what, why did he, why did he think that you had what it, what he needed to be able to, to run A&R for a label. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, well, I think it was the fact that he saw my knowledge of music. Okay. My interest in music, um, that I had a, a gut sense about what I think was really good and what wasn't. Um, yeah. You know, the fact that, that I had, like, the first band I ever shopped a record deal for was Leonard Skinner, and everybody passed on it. Was, that, that was part of my other part of the story of Muscle Shoals, you know, I had Freebird and everybody said no. So I knew they were out of their minds right. because this is one of the best bands I had ever seen. And of course they went off to have great successes. Sure. Um, and he just liked my, my instincts about music. Okay. And he taught me a lot. I mean, Larry was very much rooted in pop music and he had so many hits at Bell Records. Uh, when he was there with Tony Orlando and Dawn and uh, Brownsville Station and um, uh, Gary Glitter and, you know, just tons sure. of people, Mountain. Yeah. And, you know, so he really taught me a lot about what to look for. And it, it was really on the job training. I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was a little daunting at first. It was scary. You know, I would sit in on sessions uh, of things that were already happening. Uh, artists I did just to sort of soak up and see how the producers were you know interacting with the artists and I knew a lot about that having having worked in Muscle Shoals but in terms of making decisions and ideas and stuff like that I remember we were we were uh, producing Robert Gordon's second album Fresh Fish Special and uh, it was a great studio uh, in Radio City Music Hall back then on the fifth floor of the building called Plaza Sound I don't think it exists anymore. Toscanini used to record the orchestras there. And that's where Richard did the Blondie and Robert Gordon records. Big, big room with big ambient sound. And Bruce Springsteen really loved Robert. And he wrote Fire for him 
and he came into the session and I was there and he played piano on it. Um, and then we decided we were going to put that out as a single, but Larry and I, uh, my boss decided, you know, you know, we should spruce this up a little bit, maybe put some horns on it and, and, and background singers. At the time we had Sissy Houston on private stock. She was one of our artists, Whitney's mom. And Whitney was, as a teenager then, was singing background on Sissy's records. So we were recording. Mm. So Sissy put together the Sweet Inspirations and sang on all the Aretha Franklin, Dion Warwick records. And we went into the studio and we added them on background vocals. And then I got my friend at the time, Denny Morales, who's a great sax player. He played on Superstitious with Stevie Wonder. Uh, he pulled in his buddies, Steve Medeo and trumpet and all these great play. And we put a horn section on and we remixed it. Richard remixed it. And then uh, I, I ended up mastering it with the late George Marino at Sterling Sound, who was one of the great <clears throat> mastering engineers. And we put it out as a single. And that version never appeared on an album. I have the 45s downstairs of it. And then at the time, this was a crazy time in the music business. There were cover wars, cover battles. So we had cut this song, and who else cut it? The Pointer Sisters. And they were on RSO, Robert Stiglitz's label. And they had way more money in record promotion and notoriety than we did. But both songs were battling, trying to go up the charts. And the Pointer yeah. Sisters ended up having the big, big hit. But mm -hmm. Robert's version was so totally cool. I mean, it was just a great, great record. But that that was a really fun and exciting project to work on like that. But those are things that would happen, you know. And But, you know, you, you basically learned on the job, but it was really instinct. I mean, I've always, always gone with my gut instinct in, throughout my career. And I always trust my gut. And if I go against it, then it's usually going to be a, a disappointment <laughs> of yeah. some sort. Well, I think that's good, good advice for for anyone, you know, it's always, always trust your instinct to trust your gut, you know, cause usually it's right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, I'm curious because the music industry has changed so much since the sixties and seventies, obviously. Um, what would you, what would you tell somebody nowadays who's wanting to get into, into music, um, either on the business side of it, like with what you've been doing, what we've talked about so far, or as an artist, you know, like you're talking about Leonard Skinner and, you know, all these artists that were coming up then, but man, it's just a different world now. Yeah. You know, so like, what would you, what would you tell somebody now wanting to get in onto either side of it, the business or creative side, just compared to what it was then? Well, it is different. It's way different. It'll never be what it was. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I think all industries are constantly evolving, no matter what kind of work you do for a living and ha have been for sure. years and years. Yeah. Um, well, I would say I work with a lot of young acts. Uh, I have, as I said, close to 90 artists signed to my company. And they're all, young. a lot of them are younger, newer artists. Some are a little bit older, have been around for a while. Um, and they're all out there putting out records on their own. I mean, I have a, a number of acts that I work with that are assigned to some small independent labels. You know, it, it's harder than ever to do this. But I think that if you're, first of all, wanting to be an artist, 
you got to really pay your dues, man. You got you got to really get down in the trenches and learn how to write songs and collaborate with people. If you want to be a really successful touring act, you got to get out there and play live. I mean, right now it's a little tough <laughs> in the middle of this pandemic, of course, but but um, once that settles down eventually, you know, the greatest artists were artists that just were out on the road for a long, long time before they ever got a record deal. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, and, and years back you were able to do that and make somewhat of a bit of a living, but it's harder than ever now. So um, I think, so as a recording artist, I think you got to really hone your craft and find the right like-minded musicians to, to be with. If you're a solo artist and finding backup people that can help you with it. And also, you know, again, working your way towards cutting demos and finding producers who like what you're doing. I mean, uh, it's not easy, but they're out there. People are always listening to things, you know, so you need to really put yourself out there and try to connect with people. Networking is the biggest part of everything. I mean, I speak and, and moderate lots of panels. That's again, how you and I met Marty right. last yeah. year, you know, I did a big licensing panel at Americana Fest and uh, it, it, it's just so important to, to hone your craft as an artist. Now you want to be a record producer and that's what I did for a long time. And I do manage people like that. Uh, you know, you have to go out there and find people you can record and learn the craft. I mean, uh, most people have home recording setups these days. Uh, that's where things went went to. I mean, back when I started Muscle Shoals, if you didn't have a record deal or somebody with a lot of money, you could not make an album. Right. You know, there was yeah. no way to yeah. do it. So nowadays, everybody can make records in their bedrooms, and they do. Billie Eilish is the greatest example of a contemporary new artist who blew through the roof making that whole album in her bedroom with her brother. I yeah, mean, and won a bunch of Grammys. <laughs> yeah, and you know, but what what's the ingredient? It's not about where you recorded it. It's about the songs, and that's everything. Songwriting is the key. You've got to have great songs. So if you want to be an artist that makes records, that tours, you got to have great songwriting. Uh, if you're a producer, you have to recognize great writing in an artist that you may want to produce or have the ability to find songs or get songwriters to write songs for those artists. Um, that's one thing that has not changed throughout the history of this industry. It's great songs. Mm -hmm. It's great songs that make it happen. Um, and that'll never change, no matter what the technology is or how things work. It still comes down to a piece of music that moves someone emotionally. Sure. And that's yeah, really, absolutely. really the key. So um, I think that's important. So if you want to be a film and TV composer, that's a very hard game these days. And I represent some wonderful people in that field. But, you know, start, look, you have to know how to write music. You have to know how to work with time code. Start working with people, with with filmmakers in film school go and try and, and 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 meet 
young filmmakers. I know you're in Nashville, so I know Vanderbilt has and Belmont probably have programs mm -hmm. for that. Meet young filmmakers and try to see if you can work on their scores. And they're not going to pay you, but you, you're not going to get paid a lot to do anything in the beginning anyway. Learn the craft. You got to learn it from the very bottom up, you know. And so no matter what area or you want to be an industry executive, well, try to, again, try to get internships. A lot of companies, publishers, record companies, agencies, you know, do internships in the summer. Try to find, you know, summer internships where you can get in the door and learn the craft and work your way up the ladder. And so many people who are very big executives now in the industry started that way, you know. Um, again, I, I got very lucky in my in my life, and, and I recognized when the doors were going to open. And I, I took every opportunity that came by my way. I tried, I just did everything I could. So, and it made me a, a more well-rounded person in what I know and do now in the industry. But also prior to me starting my company, I've had my company now, Stephen Sharp Entertainment, for, since 1991. But in 91, I did a joint venture with a big music publishing company called Carlin America. And I was there for 27 years. And I rose to be senior VP creative for North America. And we owned 150,000 songs. And I got to work with ACDC, James Brown, Billy Holiday, the love and spoof of the turtles. Uh, I mean, JJ Kale, unbelievable, you know, artists and yes and wire and Genesis. I mean, we had so yeah. much amazing music and I learned the music publishing business really inside out from them. Although I had worked in it in a little bit, off and on during other parts of my career. And so, I mean, again, I, I come out of this whole thing and here I am now in, in, in my life and, you know, have an incredible understanding of how music publishing works, how record companies work, how, you know, booking works. I mean, all of it, because I've, I've been immersed in all different areas of it. But I think, yeah. again, no matter what you want to do, you got to find people that can, embrace you and, and take you in and, and, and help you grow. Yeah. Well, I'll say this, and I think that is all amazing information um, for, for the audience to hear. And hopefully they'll, you know, people will take these things and put it into practice into what they're wanting to do. Um, you know, so many times we say you got to go to school, you got to be, you have to have, you know, a four-year degree and a bachelor's degree and master's degree and whatever to do these things. And a lot of times, you know, you do to certain to a certain extent, and it's helpful in a lot of ways. But um, I think it's encouraging for people to hear you say that you learned on the job training. There's nothing like it. Yeah, I, I yeah. Mean, and a lot, of, a lot of the the guests that I've had on the show have have said that same type thing. But I think it's just to reiterate and say, even if if you have a degree, if you don't have a degree, and whatever it is that you're hoping to do, if you can get your foot in the door to do an internship or just to be around those people, because if they believe in you and you are willing to learn, then, and they see that, then they're willing, they're more willing at that time to include you in everything that they're in what they're doing. And that allows you opportunities to learn on the job and get that exposure that you need that you wouldn't normally have. And so just the fact that you're willing to do that, you know, I think speaks volumes and people need to know that 
that they need to be willing to do that as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I personally have mentored many people over the years, you know, that wanted to learn and, you know, and, and get into it. I mean, I remember I, I taught, uh, this is when I was living in the West Village in the late 70s, early 80s. There was a, one of these learning places called West Winds. They had brochures you could get in stores and stuff. And I taught them breaking into the music business course uh, for about a I don't know, maybe two years out of my apartment while I was doing independent producing. And a number of people who took that course went on to become big executives in the business, you know, and really learned from it. I mean, it was amazing to see that happen, you know, and other people fell by the wayside, you know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a tough business. You, you've got to want this. It's got to be an obsession uh, and it's got to be in your bones and your soul. To, to, to want to do this kind of work. And if you've got the gift for it, then you go for it. You know, I mean, I, you know, did I want to be a musician? Yeah, I tried. I studied some instruments when I was younger. I didn't have it. I didn't have the gift for that. But I did have the gift for hearing music and mm -hmm. recognizing talent and, 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 and knowing how to put it together, even when I produced records. I knew how to do head arrangements and work with musicians and communicate what I wanted to get out of it, you know, in the studio. And, 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 uh, but man, it, it's, you know, there's all different kinds of people that do that kind of work and come from very different backgrounds. But yeah, I know lots of people who studied music, have degrees in school. I mean, I studied music in college as well, uh, but people who came out of big music business programs and, you know, again, it may have been helpful, but it wasn't until they actually got gigs in, in companies did they really learn the business and learn right. it on the job. Because that's really how you do it. You know? Yeah, even with a degree, it's still not real world experience until you get in the door and start having to actually work at it. Because you're still going to learn things on the job that you don't learn in a, in a classroom or in a book. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? No, you got to okay. go through it. And it's a, you're going to get rejected like crazy. Everybody does. I still get rejected. <laughs> you know, all these years. Sure. Into, doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've been. People, you know, blow you off all the time. And then there's people who just want to work with you, you know. So, it, but it really comes down to, to, to relationships, you know, and building yep deep, long-lasting relationships with good people. And one thing I've learned is that you cannot, um, you, you there's certain people you're just never going to connect with. It's just right. whatever it is, the chemistry is just not going to be there. And you got to say, okay, can't beat this to death. Move on. There'll be other people. There's plenty of people to work with, and there'll be plenty of people that'll be good people that you'll be able to connect with. You got to recognize all of that as you go along. But that's yeah. the same in any business, any industry. True. Doesn't matter. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, man, this is so good. Thank you so much for, sure. for sharing all this. I'm very grateful for you to come on and do and do this. So as far as Stephen Scharf Entertainment, your company now, which you you mainly focus on the TV film industry. Um, and commercials. Yeah. I mean, advertising. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so w what is it that you're looking for in when you're wanting to sign an artist or a writer or composer? What is it that you're looking for uh, in, in signing somebody? 
Well, I think first and foremost, I love all genres of music. And in my licensing company, I represent pretty much across the board all kinds of music. I mean, pop, rock, alternative, heavy metal, electronic, hip hop, uh, Spanish language music, um, uh, singer songwriters, you know, you, you name it. I mean, it, 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 world music. I, I love all kinds of stuff. And, and and I like to have that diversity because I, I would I like to pitch to different things. What 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 is it? It's it's hearing the songs. I, I gotta feel it in my gut. If if I hear somebody who's got something special song wise, and it moves me, then I'm I'm gonna go for it, and and, and sign them. I I, I just. Um, I met this young Canadian singer-songwriter a year ago, uh, April a April Eileen. She lives in um, the Maritimes area of Canada now. Um, and I heard her and I liked her, but it didn't really get me. And then she, you know, had sent me a song she had just put out a couple months ago, and it knocked me out, and I signed her on that song. You know, so I'm just starting to work that, that track. So I, I may hear somebody at one point, you know, in their career and it maybe isn't right. And then I hear them again down the road and it moves me. So it's mm -hmm. really about mu music that moves me. And then also music that I think I can get placed. I mean, I deal with hundreds of music supervisors, hundreds of them, independents, all the ones who work at the studios. So I kind of know what they're looking at. You know, and, and also I'm, uh, I know the culture of television and film to a good degree. So I try to have a lot of music that can fit genres that work. I mean, th music that's sort of straight down the middle to me isn't as interesting. Uh, I mean, I love great pop music, but it's got to have something really strong in terms of the writing and so forth. But I like quirkier things, left of center music. I work with a lot of artists that write a lot of dark music. Because you look, there's a lot of shows that use that kind of music. So I, I really have to hear, I'll listen to everything. And if something moves me, I'll talk to that artist and, and go, okay, I think I, think I, I think I can do something with this. It, it, it's just a gut reaction for me if I think it's something I can take on. But I'm, I'm very diverse in terms of the genres that I work with. I work with a lot of Americana artists, which I love, you know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, e everything, you know. So, so it's, uh, you, you just never know what's gonna fly, you know, what's gonna get uh, placed. Depending yeah. on what people need, you know. So, so that. But in terms of um, composers too, it, for film and TV composers, it, it's it's. I've got to hear a very special voice in that person's writing that's going to want to make me interested to move forward. You know, I, I get hit with so many composers all the time, and a lot of them are just good, and some of them are just not up to snuff, you know, and when I hear something that really moves me and I, I go for it, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm in, in, into my first year of representing uh, David Sierra here in New York, who scores all of Ken Burns's documentaries. 
Oh, cool. He's an incredible composer. Yeah. Um, and we just finished a documentary that's, I don't know when it's coming out, but we just wrapped it up right before the pandemic for a, a producer here in New York. Um, not, not Ken, another producer. Um, and, 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 but David's already sketching out three different new Ken Burns projects that are in production. I mean, Ken can keep working cause he doesn't have to go to a studio to film anything. He uses existing footage. So, but, right. but, but to, you know, work with David has been so far an amazing pleasure and he's just an incredibly talented guy. Um, That's cool. You know, but uh, that was just one of those things. He never had a manager and, you know, we started talking. I, we met uh, doing panels at the sink summit a year and a half ago. That's mm. how it happened. And we started striking okay. the conversation. So, but it, it's really comes down to a special voice and the same with being a producer. You really have to be, really have to have a vision of knowing how to make a record. And if you're a writer producer, that's going to be a very different, you know, angle to bring to the table. Uh, right. It just just depends on each person. So, do you prefer to sign people exclusively, or do you do non-exclusive so that they can continue to work with other agencies if they want to as well? Or what do you prefer? No, uh, only exclusive. Only exclusive. Yeah, you. yeah. Well, well, certainly as a manager, you know, uh, a managing, so, yeah. you know, a person that's got to be that. But yeah, for the licensing exclusive, all, all the really good licensing companies only do exclusive licensing, and the reason why we do that and why I do that is because, first of all. It, it, it takes a long time to really get an act off the ground in terms of getting the music out to the supervisors and getting something placed. And if you have more than one person pitching the same music, we're all pitching to the same supervisors. If they get a piece of music from two different or three different people, they're going to get really upset and not know who to make a deal with. And they'll shut down on you and you can really ruin a relationship because of that. I think you got to go find a licensing entity like myself or somebody else that really believes in your music and make a commitment and go for it, you know, and that's really how it works. Uh, I don't want other people running around with the same. I mean, that turns into a major train wreck uh, and it's not, not a good thing. There are, yeah, lots of, you know, big uh, licensing companies that take thousands of tracks from people and they do it non-exclusive. I'm, I'm not into that. And I don't think they give the same kind of coverage that somebody like myself or other people uh, like, like me who I know, you know, really put more personal effort into signing. I mean, when I sign somebody, I'm really going to work the music, you know. And again, yeah. I don't make any money unless I play something. And that's the other thing. Do not ever go to a licensing company that's asking you to pay them to pitch your music. Right. That's a no-no. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, uh, absolutely. Run away. Sure. Um, man, I could sit and talk to you for probably two, three more hours <laughs> just just to hear your, continue hearing your story. I know there's so much that we haven't even talked about. Mm -hmm. Um but uh, you're you're busy. You got work to do, and so I don't want to keep you. But just as we kind of wrap up here, um, beyond what we've already talked about, are there any 
which any advice that you would have for people wanting to get into it, either again, either on the business or creative side, some do some don'ts um, beyond what you've already, you've already talked about um, just as we wrap up here. Well, I think uh, networking with people at conferences is really a good thing. Uh, sending really appropriate, uh, respectful emails to people. Okay. Introducing yourself, not being too verbose, you know, and saying, this is who I am, this is what I do. Um, uh, if, if you're wanting to send them any kind of music, don't send MP3 attachments. Put a, a streaming link inside the body of an email. Um, and again, try and see if you can get interviews with companies. I mean, depending on where you live, uh, you know, if you're in Nashville where you are, Marty, uh, you know, there's a lot of really great people down there who are very friendly and open to meeting people. Reach out, try to go on to these online uh, seminars that people do, like Mark Freezer, who's a good friend, does the Sing Summit. He does these things now every day. Right. I mean, I've yeah. spoken at every one of his conferences since he started yeah. them, you know, in New York and, and got clients out of it. That's again, how I met David. You know? So, um, but, but I've met artists through there and that's when I, where I met April originally, you know, and I mean, so, so it, 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 it's you know, networking is really important. Uh, sending out emails, but do your homework, do your homework, depending on where you're trying to, who you're trying to approach, make sure you find out who they are, what they do, what their companies are about, so you're not embarrassing yourself by sending something that doesn't make any sense. Wow. Thank you so much. I am so very grateful for your time. And and I just remembered, as you said, we were talking about Mark and Sync Summit. I, I remember that is the connection because I got to speak. I attended and spoke at um, the Nashville Sync Summit last year. Mm -hmm. And, uh, was on, I'm on the, we're on the email list of, you know, different speakers and whatever at different conferences. And so I think you had spoken at a different one. And so I reached out to you because of that. And that's how we initially connected, I believe. Yeah. So there you go. Well, that's <laughs> it. Yep. I mean, again, yeah, cause like a week later is when I met you in person. So, yeah. right. Right. But it's, again, it's all about networking, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to help people. Uh, again, you reached out to me in September you asked, you didn't have a badge for, for the conference and I was able to get you a day pass to come see my panel. And I was yeah. more than happy to do that because that's who yeah. I am. There are yeah. other people who may not do something like that, but. Uh, sure. And that speaks, that speaks volumes about you and your willingness to, to help people and want to see people be successful, you know, cause some people don't care and it doesn't matter, but you, you recognize that, you know, that this was important to me to be able to come and be a part of that and to learn about some things that I may not know about yet and to meet you and some other people. And, um, you know, so I think when you see people that are really interested and have that same mindset that are, you know, are like, I'm going to do what I need to do to get, to get into these things and take the chance to reach out. It's like, you didn't have to respond to me, but you were kind enough to do so and gave me an opportunity that, you didn't have to give me. And so I'm grateful for that. And so that's built a relationship that we get to sit and have this conversation here. Now. Exactly. Cause if I didn't so. do that, I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. Exactly. <laughs> so. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, and I'm better for it and my audience is going to be better for it. So, so thank you so much. Sure. I, I'm grateful. Uh, and I know that everyone's going to take what we've talked about and, and put it into practice into their careers. And uh, I'm excited to see what 
what people do with what you've taught us today. So thank you so much for your time. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks, Marty. You too. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, thank you guys once again for joining us. It was an amazing interview, like I said it would be. And Stephen is just full of knowledge and has just so much wisdom and has been a part of this industry for so long. And there's you know, just so much to take away from this. So you, you may have to go back and listen to this episode a couple of times just to get everything out of it that you need. Um, and I hope you do that. So thank you again for listening. And I hope you take what we've talked about today and that you can apply it to your career and to your life. Be sure, if you would, to subscribe to the podcast on Apple and Spotify and on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, all the different places that you can find this, wherever you're listening, please subscribe and like it and share it with all of your friends if you would do that. Remember, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. If you need consultation over a phone call or Skype or Zoom, let us know how we can help you begin to make a living in the music industry.